Open your Bibles to Luke 1. Luke 1, we're going to start in verse 39, and we're going to go to verse 56 this morning. Luke 1, 39 to 56 is where we're going to be. This, uh, this time of year is always the most enjoyable for me. I look forward to it every year, the Christmas season as we get closer. I love the traditions, all the gift exchanges, all the foods and all the excitement and all those kinds of things. Even time with family is enjoyable, at least for a couple days, you know. I think we all agree it gets old after a while, but, you, but for a little while we enjoy it, we love it um, for a day or two. Normally this time of year is... Um, we, we normally just continue studying whatever book that we're in. We just so happen to have concluded our study on the book of Matthew, as the Lord's providence would have it, last week. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to be in another gospel. Uh, we're going to the book of Luke, and we're going to do uh, three sermons through the book of Luke over the next three weeks. And we're going to see some things here that Luke is teaching us, not just about why Jesus came but also what that actually teaches us, what, what Luke is actually pointing out to us. Not just why he came, of course, we're going to take a close look at that too. That's going to be really important to us. But what point Luke is actually making about the incarnation of Jesus, what that actually has to say to us. So this morning, we're going to begin by looking at, at two women that are right in the very center of this story, Elizabeth and Mary. And before we read this account, I want to just refresh your memory in case you've forgotten, about where we are in this story. Remember, Zechariah is the husband of Elizabeth. And Zechariah is a priest in the temple. And we're going to talk more about him next week. But he has just had an encounter with an angel who has informed him that Elizabeth is going to be pregnant with a child. And that's strange because she is well past the childbearing age. Both of them are well past the age where she should become pregnant. And yet, here she is, pregnant with John the Baptist. And we also see that some distance away, Elizabeth's relative Mary is notified by the same angel, Gabriel, that she is going to be pregnant. Now, Elizabeth is naturally conceived, but Mary is a virgin. And so the angel tells Mary that Elizabeth is pregnant. Hey, your relative Elizabeth is pregnant. And, uh, and, and we also learn that she's pregnant with John, who is about six months older than Jesus. So uh, Elizabeth is about six months further along than Jesus. And so it's right here that we pick up this story in Luke 1, 39 to 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah. And greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, 
and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and his holy name. His, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this word that has come to us. We're so grateful that you have sent Christ into the world for us. I pray that as we reflect on the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, that we would not simply let it go by as stories we've heard a million times, stories we've recanted every, or recounted every single year. I pray that instead we would reflect on them, we would think on them, we would dwell and meditate on it, on it on your word, that it would be afresh to us even today. That as we think about what the incarnation actually means, what's happening here in this passage, that it would cause us exuberance, joy over what you have done for us in Christ. Open your word to us. Reveal it to us. Open our minds and hearts and eyes that we may be understanding, that we may see, we may believe what's in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mary has this pretty lengthy poem that we typically refer to as the Magnificat. And she talks about in this poem how God has in her and in this child reversed her fortunes. He's changed the fortunes of the poor and has cast down the rich and exalted those who are poor. And, and it seems kind of strange, at least when you really think about it, why Mary would say these things. As she comes to this, as she comes to her, her cousin Elizabeth's house. Well, if you're not tracking with what's happening in the Old Testament and what's happened so far in the nation of Israel, then perhaps Mary's words might not make complete sense to you. And so I think it's worth to think back through the story of Scripture so that we can understand what both uh, is happening here in both Elizabeth and Mary's words as they. Uh, come together in this story. Remember, going all the way back, as far back as Genesis, we go back into chapter 12 of Genesis, and God makes a promise to Abraham in chapter 12. And he says this in Genesis 12, 2-3, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. You hear that? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a promise that's coming to, at this time in the passage, a childless Abraham. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to bless all the nations through you, and, and all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And then just a few chapters later in chapter 17, verse 8, he says this to Abraham, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. 
So you're tracking so far, there's at least a couple of promises that God is making to Abraham here in these two passages and to really the nation of Israel that's going to come from him. The first is that he's going to make of him a great nation and, and bless all of the nations of the earth through him. So all the nations are going to receive a blessing by virtue of their association with Abraham. And then the second promise here at the end is that the land is going to be for them an everlasting possession. But if you're following the story of Israel through the Old Testament, this is something that never really comes within their grasp. They never gain full possession of the land. And that's due, in large part, it's due almost exclusively to their own sin. They, they sin against the Lord, grievous sins, and they never come into possession of the land. They don't drive out the people that they're supposed to drive out. And, and so they never uh, grab the whole land. In fact, the height of their prominence of blessing the nations through Abraham really comes to a point in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel where David becomes king, and then on into 1 Kings where his son Solomon takes over. But by the end of Solomon's reign, he's in sin and idolatry. The nation is divided right after he dies. And not long after that, the nation is hauled off into captivity. The northern kingdom is hauled off into Assyria. The southern kingdom is hauled off into captivity in Babylon. And when they're released from captivity, they come back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And honestly, what they rebuild is pretty shabby. They don't have tons of money, and they don't have a lot of supplies, and they don't have a lot of labor. And what they build is just not quite as appealing as what Solomon's temple was years before. And throughout the years, from the time they come back to reoccupy the land until this time in our passage, the land is actually ruled not by the Jews, but by many other nations that are ruling over them. So they, they don't really take possession of the land. And perhaps the most traumatic situation is that the last prophet that actually came to them was Malachi. He's about 400 years before Mary and Elizabeth in the scene that we read right here. We sang a song just a minute ago, 400 years in the silent age. That's what it's talking about, this intermediate time between when the Old Testament closes in the book of Malachi and the New Testament opens here with Mary and Elizabeth. There's some 400 years of silence where God has not sent to them a word from a prophet. Do you understand what that would feel like as the people of God? During that time, not only had the Jews been ruled by other nations, but there was one point where they're ruled by the Seleucids, and Antiochus Epiphanes, who is leading the Seleucid army, marches into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and slaughters a pig on the altar. And if that's not bad enough, do you know what happens to him? Nothing. Wait, what happened to the Holy of Holies? 
What happens to, to, to God's glory? What happened to only the high priest? What happened to the only certain sacrifices? What happened to the uncleanness of pigs? What happened to all of that? Isn't he supposed to drop dead? Well, it seems that God is not only silent in not sending to them a prophet, but he seems also silent when it comes to invading armies. So then the question that naturally comes to the Jew over these 400 years is, where is God? What's happening as a result of his silence? Why is he silent? Why doesn't he come to us? The Jews are far from being a light to the Gentiles. They haven't seen the promises of Abraham fulfilled. They can't be a light to the, the nations if they can't even possess their own land. They're certainly not going to bless the nations. They're a laughing stock to the nations. Worse than Georgia. I had to slip it in there somehow. They're a laughing stock to the entire world. And if that's not enough, there's a ruling class that leads them into idolatry. You understand when Jesus comes onto the scene and really begins his ministry, what we've spent the last three and a half years talking about throughout the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus comes onto the scene and begins his ministry, he is pushing back against the ruling class that is actually leading them. So not only has God been silent, not only has he not sent a prophet, but now the leading class, the ruling class over them is leading them into idolatry. With few exceptions, the Jewish people had been stiff-necked, they'd been hard-hearted, they'd been obstinate toward the Lord. So, it's against that cultural backdrop, understand, that an angel appears to first Zechariah and then to Mary. Two women who are peasants in the land. The Lord appears to them through the angel Gabriel, and tells them what he's about to do. And both of them in situations where pregnancy is impossible. Obviously for different reasons. Elizabeth, because she's too old, she's barren, she's never had a child, she is past the childbearing age, and Mary is obviously a virgin. But the point of the passage is not only the miraculous way that the Lord is going to condescend into the world, But really what Luke is bringing to light is the kind of people that he's coming to. You understand? That's the difference here. So often, it's easy, I think, and for good reason. When we look at the, the story of Christ coming into the world, we look at the miraculous way that he appeared through the Virgin Mary, being born of a virgin. That's all incredible, and we should look at that. But then we also need to take note of what the biblical author is actually doing, too, is saying but there's a kind of people that he came to. A kind of people that he revealed himself through. And that is also really important. It's tremendously important and tells us everything about what kind of people he's coming to, what the Lord is coming to do in the incarnation of Christ. Let's first look at the two kinds of people in this passage. The first one we're going to see is Elizabeth. Obviously, she's the wife of Zechariah, who is a priest. Now, we don't know exactly how old she is, but we know that she's so far past the childbearing age that it's preposterous that she would have a child. In fact, at this moment, when, uh, when Mary comes to visit uh, Elizabeth, Zechariah is mute 
because of his questioning of Gabriel in the temple. We're going to talk more about that next week. But she comes to uh, Sarah, who it's preposterous for her to have a child. She, uh, I said Sarah, but I meant Elizabeth. She's like Sarah in uh, the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. And what we do know about her, Luke tells us all the way back at the beginning of the book. Look in verse 6. If you just go straight up in, in your, on your page there to verse 6, it says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. We're talking about Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah. And so Elizabeth is six months pregnant, and she's at home in the south of the land when the northerner Mary comes to visit her, at which point verse 41 tells us that John, who is in the womb of Elizabeth, leapt for joy at the sound of Mary's greeting. Now, we, of course, know that these are living babies in the womb, and it seems like even though the culture is very confused about what is inside the womb of a woman before the baby is born, it seems that Luke and Elizabeth have no problem calling them babies. But I digress. The importance of mentioning John leaping in the womb is what? Well, John is the forerunner for Christ. So he is coming into the world to prepare the hearts of people to hear the preaching and receive the salvation that Christ is coming to give. And so John leaping in the womb at the greeting of Mary and at the very presence of Jesus tells us all we need to know about how ready he is to take on his role of proclaiming the coming of Christ. It's to make sure that we understand that the value of the baby in the womb of Mary is that he's the creator of the universe. Do you understand that? The creator of the universe has entered into the orbit of humanity, and John, the baby inside the womb of Mary, is the first one to let us know. He understands intuitively that this is God in the flesh come into his home and into the sphere within the earshot of his mother, and he understands exactly how important that is. But Luke is sure that we understand that the Holy Spirit is also active in this situation. Do you see that there? He gives Elizabeth the understanding of what just happened. Look at verse 41. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So, so Luke tells us, what does he say first? That she was filled with the Spirit. And what that means is that everything that follows after that is there because the Holy Spirit is giving Elizabeth, the interpretation. And so what does she do? She blesses Mary, and then she gives the interpretation of the movement of John. This is not an unfamiliar feeling to mothers whose baby is six months old. They're going to move in the womb. They're going to feel them doing somersaults, I'm told. They're going to feel them kicking. And sometimes when they get really pregnant, you can even see the feet move across the stomach. Always a really cool feeling. They'll push back against you when your hand is up there. It's really neat. But often we go, ah, uh, just turning somersaults. Not so here. 
The Holy Spirit comes to give Elizabeth the interpretation of what has happened. Not only that John has leapt for joy because his Savior has come into his house, but also it reveals to us the posture of Elizabeth's heart. And that's what I want you to pay attention to. What is the posture of her heart? Look at what, he, what she says. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? See, Elizabeth recognizes the blessing that Mary has, has been given to be the one that is carrying about the Messiah. But more than that, she is assuming a humble posture of one who is not deserving, not only to have the creator and maker of the moon in her presence, but the mother of the maker of the moon in her presence. The reason that I want to clue you into this and the reason that I think that's really important, and that Luke is bringing that out in her and showing you what she's saying, is because Mary is going to say some very similar things about her own carrying of the Messiah. And the entire section where Mary begins speaking is one of humility. And you can see that in the passage. And so what that tells us is that Luke is not only trying to show us the miraculous way in which the Christ child comes into the world, but the people that he comes to. And why these two people, of all people, Luke's drawing our attention to the statement of both these very faithful women and it's telling something bigger about what God is doing through the incarnation of Jesus. But let's look at Mary's response here. This is a passage that's normally referred to as I said as the Magnificat, which is basically it basically just means a hymn that Mary sings. So Mary is going to explain the meaning of Jesus' incarnation to us. Now Elizabeth has just said, hey, I'm not even worthy to have you in my house. And now Mary is going to say in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. In verse 50, And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. Something Mary is recognizing is that God is about to do something. He's about to change all of human history. He's about to perform the most miraculous act, second maybe, to the resurrection, in all of human history. And that thought, the very notion that He's about to do that, causes Mary to burst out into song. But first I want you to see that she's blown away by the fact that God has chosen her for this task of caring for this offspring. Remember that the entire book of Genesis and really the entire Old Testament is about retracing or tracing the birth of, of this child. Remember going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have fallen and God is coming to deliver the punishments not only to the man and to the woman, but also to the serpent. And in verse 15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the entire course of the Old Testament, 
And all of Israel's history is really set by that verse. You understand? That might be the most important verse to help you understand what the book of Genesis is really about. Everything from then on out is about tracing the seed that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And so we get, what do we get in Genesis? A lot of, and a lot of the Old Testament, we get these genealogies that a lot of us just sort of skim past because we don't want to read them. And, and, and for the Jew reading that, those genealogies are incredibly important because they're helping them see where this child, this Messiah, this Savior is coming from. And obviously they know this is going to come from a kingly line. And so by the end of Genesis, what do we get? But Judah, as the one indicated, where the scepter is not going to leave from the tribe of Judah. Judah is going to hold that scepter on through to the end. And where does David come from? The king, who we think might be the snake crusher. Who does he come from? He comes from the tribe of Judah. And time after time, we get these individuals rising up in the nation of Israel that seem to show some promise that they are going to be the one to come to do battle with this serpent, who's this serpent crusher, who's declared to us in Genesis 3.15, and yet every single one of them fail. But for the nation of Israel, the identity of this offspring is tremendously important. And so they, through copious methods of record-keeping, they keep track of where these genealogies are developing. And so for Mary, this is not only a child. This is not only a child who is fully God. For Mary, this is the nexus point of human history. This is the most important thing in human history that has ever happened. And so she's blown away that God would choose a her. Look in verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Surely the bearer of the Christ child would be one of nobility, one of importance, one of prominence. We know he's going to be a king. Shouldn't his mother, the one who bears him, be a queen of some sort? Someone important, someone who could afford great health care, someone who could afford to put a roof over his head. But it wasn't. It was a peasant virgin in northern Israel. Aren't there times in your life where you wonder to yourself if God is actually listening? Aren't there times where you just think from various things that you wonder if, if God is even paying attention to you? It might be a time in complete despair, or it might be a job that you're working that seems to be pointless and have no real um, design in the grand scheme of things. No real, you're not moving any earth here. You're not changing people's lives, and you, you feel like you're doing a menial task, and you wonder sometimes, does God even care about me? I'm not doing anything that seems important here. Does God even notice me? Imagine Mary, a teenage peasant in northern Israel. Imagine how important her life is, how many people she's known by. Probably not many. If you were to ask her to give an assessment, of what great and grand things she's doing for the kingdom of God, how would she answer you prior to Gabriel appearing to her? 
But then what happens? Out of nowhere, the angel Gabriel appears to her and tells her that she's going to be the most important mother that's ever existed. Can you imagine that shift? Can you imagine what's just been dumped into her lap? Can you imagine what emotions she must be feeling? Going from seemingly having nothing and her engagement to Joseph probably being the most important thing that's happened to her to date. And yet all of a sudden, you're going to be the most important mother that's ever existed. But do you understand what Mary is saying here? The coming of the Messiah is something that's very personal to her because it demonstrates that the God of the universe actually sees her. You see that? In the corner of Nowheresville, in the middle of whatever she's doing, the God of the universe is looking at her, sees her, takes note of her heart, of who she is, knows what she's going through, understands it all too well, and says, you're the one, Mary. In giving her this responsibility, you see, God is making a statement about how He views the world, about how He views what is important and what is not. It's not earthly wealth, it turns out. It's not the pomp of power. He values the humble. He values the hungry. And remember what she says here in verse 50. It's not just the physically poor. That's not what she's talking about. But those who fear Him, she says. The ones who are dependent on Him. Remember throughout the Gospel of Matthew, that's what we've hammered on over and over and over again. The poor in spirit are the ones who are dependent. Mary underlines the same thing here. What God has done is spoken, spoken into the world, into sinful humanity, and said, guess what, guys? This is what I care about. These are the people that I come near. These are the people that I work through. So Mary is blown away by the fact that God is reaching down to her when He has every right to ignore her. How do you understand her humility here? It's precisely that. He has no reason to look to me. And yet He has done it. That is humility. That's a snapshot of humility. He has no reason to look to me, and yet he has done it. But do you understand that Elizabeth is saying the same thing? That Luke is telling you Elizabeth has the same kind of personality. And Mary comes to her and she says, what business do I have the mother of my Lord coming into my house? It's a snapshot of the kind of people God is drawing near. Not the ones who are rich. Not the ones who are powerful. Not the ones who are wrapped in pomp and circumstance. But those who understand their state and who know that they need the Lord. Those are the people that are His.
God values his humble servants. But there's a whole other component to this passage from Mary that I don't want you to miss. And it has a lot of similarities to another pregnant woman from the Old Testament. This time one who was barren, who was given a child, and that's Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now Mary doesn't quote Hannah, but I think what you will find is that there are a lot of similar things. And I think it's worth reading what Hannah says in her prayer as she is blessed with a child. It says this in 1 Samuel 2, 1-10, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit, on, sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, I want you to see some similar things. Mary doesn't quote uh, Hannah here in this prayer. But she does say some very similar things. Look at verse 1 of Hannah's prayer. I've got a chart here that I want to show you, just kind of make some easy parallels here. Verse 1 of Hannah's prayer says, My heart exalts in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. Mary says effectively the same thing in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says. Both of them praise the holiness of God just after that. Uh, Hannah in verse 2 and Mary in verse 49. Both of them recognize that the birth of their child doesn't just signal the exaltation of the humble, but God bringing down the exalted. The fat ones, the ones who have plenty, are going to go hungry. But those who are hungry are going to be filled. And they're using these, both of these, these women are using these as metaphors, if you will, for the people that depend on the Lord versus the people that are haughty and proud and are boastful and don't think that they need the Lord. And that's typified one in the poor and the other in the rich. So it's not a direct quote, but you notice that there are some parallels being drawn here. And it's double-edged. For both Hannah and for Mary, they're both recognizing that God is interjecting Himself significantly into their lives and altering them for the better. Mary is realizing how blessed she is to be carrying this child, whereas a person who is rich and who is boastful might think that they deserve that kind of honor. 
Mary understands how blessed she is to receive this, and Hannah is no longer barren. She understands that the Lord has intervened here and has given to her a child. So he has personally changed the state of their life by blessing them with his life-giving presence. But here's something that's common to both of them. They also recognize that the child that they're carrying is going to significantly alter the course of human history. The child that they're carrying is very important. Hannah's child is, of course, Samuel. Now, what is Samuel's role in Israel's history? If David had a John the Baptist to go before him, it would be Samuel. Do you recognize the significance of that in these two characters, John the Baptist and Jesus? These two people, John the Baptist and Jesus. Samuel's birth signals that God is about to do something to the proud and boastful of the world. What He had promised through Abraham, that you're going to be a blessing to the nations, that through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And in that is also the implication that through David, many other nations around them, the pagan nations, that refuse to submit to the Lord are also going to be laid low. The boastful nations that refuse to honor the Lord as God of all creation are going to be chopped down. And Samuel is going to be playing a tremendous role in preparing the nation for the inauguration of King David, who is coming to lead the nation of Israel toward being a light to the nation and being a blessing to the rest of the world and driving out the oppressor. Mary is told by Gabriel in our passage in Luke 1. Look at verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And, his, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Mary knows that this is it. This is the culmination. What we thought was going to happen with David, that he was going to lead Israel into prominence and to be a light for the nations, he failed to do. His son after him failed to do because they too were corrupted by sin. But what we do learn through David is that the Messiah, the one coming to crush the serpent, is coming through his line, specifically through David's line. And now we get to the end of that line here with Mary and she's told not only is your child going to be a son of David, he's going to be the one through whom the Lord reigns. He's going to be the one that God is going to lay low the nations. And so she knows that the one in her womb is going to be the Messiah who is going to fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham in the beginning. This is why she closes her hymn here with verse 54 and 55. She says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. As He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. This, you understand, is the fulfillment of the promise to, to bear the one who's going to come for the nation of Israel and for the entire world to come crush the head of the serpent. This is the child. This is the offspring to do battle with the devil himself, but not just the devil. Also to do battle with all his offspring. 
this is the troubling part about the Christmas narrative. Mary is quick to point out it's those who fear the Lord who should be comforted. See, she understands something concrete about the Lord coming to her, something that we should understand about the Christmas narrative, about the incarnation of Christ. It is good news for those on whom his favor rests. That's the sharp part. That's the barb. Jesus came to bless the nations and to lay low. Our culture is more than happy to celebrate Christmas. Lots of festivities, lots of joy and celebration. It's time off work, after all. Fisher-Price even sells a manger scene. Do you realize that? They don't sell a crucifixion scene. Don't bother looking for it. They do sell a manger scene. Because when it comes to Christmas, we see a baby in a straw manger with ox and cattle around, and isn't that cute? But Mary and Elizabeth and Hannah, even, are all recognizing something about what God's visitation to them at crucial moments in their life is actually doing. It is, first of all, a tremendous act of mercy. But you understand, His mercy is also very clearly defined here. It's defined as falling on those who fear Him. Remember the godly kind of fear that we saw in the Gospel of Matthew. It doesn't mean that you're frightened. It means that you revere Him. The mercy of God is falling and coming to a people who are humble, who fear Him, who revere Him. The coming of Christ is focusing the mercy of God squarely on His people. Not the perfect. In fact, the imperfect. Not the faithful. In fact, the unfaithful frequently. It's those who have a keen awareness of their need for a Savior that He's coming to. The ones who depend on His mercy, who revere Him because of His goodness, who honor Him with their lives. You understand that none of us are there by default. None of us see our sin and recognize and understand our sin and our need for a Savior by default. What has happened to us is that the Holy Spirit has come into our hearts and has opened our eyes to the need for a Savior. So you too, if you recognize your need for Christ, are in a position where God has come to you and has opened your eyes, not by your own doing, but it was a gift of God so that no man may boast. So what position are you left in? Well, it should leave you in a position of humility. Because if it doesn't leave you in a position of humility, then you should fear Christ's coming, not celebrate it. Do you understand? Now the question that comes for us is what role does the reverence of the Lord play in all of our Christmas traditions, in all of our festivities, in all of the things that we're gearing up for over the next whatever it is, 20 days? What role 
does the reverence of Christ play in our household? When we consider our Christmas traditions and all of the things that we love and enjoy, how much of those parents are teaching our kids the importance of the incarnation, the importance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the importance of helping them understand why Jesus came? Do you understand that on Christmas Day, that is not the best time to prepare your children for why we celebrate this day? You get that? You know they're going to come into the living room or wherever you exchange gifts and they're going to see whatever is there and they're going to go, I don't care what you have to say, mom or dad. I see presents. I see toys. And as parents, we shouldn't necessarily shy away of giving them gifts. Our father gives us good gifts. We should emulate him in giving them gifts. That's fine. But that's an improper time to prepare them for why Jesus came. What do you do every single day? What do you do 365 days out of the year to help reinforce and help them understand why Jesus came? Because if you wait till Christmas Day, it's too late. What, what he's saying here, what Mary is underscoring here, what, in, what all of Christian history is underscoring is that every day of our lives should be spent on teaching others what is the reason for Christ's coming, for his death, his burial, his resurrection, and how we should anticipate his second coming. How are you preparing your kids for that now? How are you preparing your own heart for that now? How are all the traditions, all the trappings of this season, how are they preparing your heart to firmly grasp the coming of Christ? See, in the incarnation of Jesus, God's mercy is defined as falling on His humble servants who depend on Him, who revere Him, who honor Him, and worship Him. The question is, is that us? Or are we really distracted with the trappings of the holiday? You understand, Christian, our most important responsibility, our most important privilege is drawing near to the Lord in worship. You understand that? That's our most important privilege, is drawing near to the Lord in worship. He has opened your eyes to your need for a Savior. How do you spend your time helping others see that same need? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we celebrate this season, as we come to tell others boldly about your drawing near as we prepare our children and all of those things. We pray for your help. We pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding and boldness as we encounter people who don't know who you are to just tell them about Christ's coming that we may use this season as a segue into gospel sharing with others. Father, we also pray that our hearts be prepared. 
that as we celebrate your drawing near, may we be reminded that you have drawn so near to us that the Holy Spirit occupies the deepest corners of our heart. That we can celebrate your drawing near, but at the same time, we can understand our need for you. Our desperate need for you. I pray that that would permeate all of our holidays. Not just our holidays, but every single day of our life. That we would get up in the morning thinking about our need for you. That we would go to bed at night thinking about our need for you. That every breath we breathe, we would be considering humbly like these two women that you have come to us, that you have loved us, that you have cared for us, that you have saved us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.